Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. Well, good morning. Today we are continuing our series, Count to Ten. And uh, when Pastor Kevin first proposed this series, I thought, joke's on him, I can count way higher than 10. I really can't. I grew up, I grew up in a small town, education's not great there. Um, so, I still use my hands and toes. Um, but seriously, so we're in, we're in the 10 commandments. Um, and so, we're looking at not just the historical context of what is or what are the Ten Commandments, we're looking at how does that impact Christians? What does that mean for us? Um, And last week, Pastor Brandon, uh, in his closing, uh, mentioned that if you want to know the roadmap, just read ahead. Uh, And so that taught me. I apparently have to do the second one. Um, So today we will be in the second commandment, which is in Exodus 20. Uh, But there were two big things that we learned last week, or at least that I took away. Uh, One is that rules enable relationship. And the second is that God alone is worthy of worship. And for many of us who are familiar with the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words, we may feel like the second commandment is a similar or a repeat of the first. Yet the truth is, the first commandment tells us that God is to be worshipped, and the second tells us how he is to be worshipped. It seems that the first four commandments speak to how the Israelites were to interact with God, and the final six deal with how they were to interact with people. So, Puritan preacher Thomas Watson commented, in the first commandment, worshipping a false god is forbidden, and in the second commandment, Worshiping the true God in a false manner is forbidden. The second commandment helps us to know the dimensions of worshiping the true God. So, let us continue this week to see how the Israelites were commanded to interact with God. In today's uh, commandment, which is found in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, we see three verses on how the Israelites were to interact and worship God. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Exodus 20, and we will begin in verse 4. Exodus 20, verse 4 reads, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Verse 5, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. In those three short verses, there are two things that I want to draw our attention to today. And the first is that in order to worship God, the Israelites must not have a false image of God. The second commandment is interesting because a casual reading of it, as I mentioned, may feel like a repeat of the first. If the first four commandments are all about the way the Israelites were to worship Yahweh, 
And if the first commandment or the first word is that they are to have no other God before or besides God or Yahweh, then why is it necessary to say that there should be no graven image or no idol produced? To understand this, we have to see that the second commandment is in two equal and important parts. The Reformation pastor John Calvin states in his book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, the second commandment has two parts. The first restrains our license from daring to subject God, who is incomprehensible, to our sense perceptions or to represent him by any form. The second part forbids us to worship any images in the name of religion. So, Throughout the Old Testament, we see there are about 14 different words that could be translated um, or, or synonyms for the words idol or images. Anyone that is familiar with the Old Testament will know that the Israelites struggled with idol worship while rejecting Yahweh for most of their existence. The first part of this commandment is forbidding Israel from making an image of God to be used in worship. And so... If there are 14 different words for this and we see this being a struggle of theirs throughout their existence, we must look at what an image is, what a carved image or idol is, and we have to understand how we can make them ourselves. So carved images are exactly that. Uh, They're images made by human hands to represent a certain deity and were thought to convey power and ability based on a religious manipulation of that carved image. Both Egypt, where the Israelites just came from, and the Canaanites, where the Israelites were heading, engaged in idol worship. God, in the second commandment, told the Israelites not to try to fit him, his personality, his character, or his abilities into a carved image because he cannot be contained. Maybe an easier way to say this is, don't put God in a box. He revealed himself to the Israelites, he's revealed himself to us as Christians, and they and we are to worship him as he designed and directed. Jen Wilkin puts it in, uh, as Jen Wilkin puts it in her book, the second commandment prohibits worship of any version of God less than God, specifically through images. The first part of the second commandment is about ensuring that there's not a watered-down version of God. I do want to be clear, and this, is, uh, this was a struggle during uh, study this week. The prohibition is not against all images in art. Uh, this is a prohibition against trying to picture God in a way that fails and is inaccurate. There's many people in this room and online that if art was condemned, we would be extremely sad. Um, I believe art can teach us truth, it can teach us beauty, it can teach us what scripture has already said, but it's to not be worshipped. Um, I'm going to go off script for a minute. If you're really interested, there's a a church father named John of Damascus, uh, and he has uh, these three treatises on the divine images. Um, If you're really into that, it's going to be great reading. If it if you're not into that, you're going to be really bored. Um, I really enjoyed them. Um, but it just, he talks about the difference between veneration or upholding images and worshiping images and what is truly accurate. Um, and so again, art is not condemned, but it's 
art forms in which it tries to convey God and then God is worshipped through that image that is forbidden. Um, so, as God commanded, um, there's not to be images of himself. He did later on command there to be images of cherubim um, in the temple. So again, we see that it's not a, a, a condemnation of all art. It's just art or images that try to convey him. Uh, from the very beginning, the worship of God was meant to be spiritual and not material. In the Gospel of John, as Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, he tells her in verse 24 of John 4, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. One commentator stated, the fact that God is spirit means that God the Father does not have a human body. God the Son came to earth in human form, but God the Father did not. Jesus is unique as Emmanuel God with us. Furthermore, some people question why the Bible sometimes speaks of God as if he has a body. In numerous places throughout the Old Testament, we read of God's ears, eyes, hands, mouth, and arms. And the answer to this question is that the writers of Scripture are using examples of anthropomorphism, um, a way of describing God with anatomical or emotional terms that humans can better understand. It's a form of figurative language that does not imply God has an actual body. And because we affirm that the scriptures are divinely and uniquely inspired by God, not, not every human act is in, uh, inspired by God. And that is why there's danger in creating an image of God that God has not revealed himself to be. Maybe an easier way to... to kind of picture this is think about you and I are out grabbing coffee together. We're sitting there and we're talking and a friend of yours comes up. You introduce us and you say, this is Justin. He's one of our pastors at our church. He grew up in the Permian Basin. He has a green thumb. He enjoys eating in front of people and he absolutely loves hugs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Your friend is going to walk away with only a portion of who I truly am. They don't, they don't know me. They don't have the right idea about me. Um, they may even want to hug me as they leave our table. Um, the friend of yours and I will never have a solid or a real relationship because of a false picture of who I am. And in a similar way, the second commandment is prohibiting the Israelites from creating a false image of who God is. If you have a false image, you can never truly worship God. And if I were to ask you, in the last week, have you made any images of God with your hands? Most likely, you would all say, no. Not, not at all. Not crafty, not artistic. I just didn't, I didn't make anything with my hands. Um, and it probably seems like a silly question. But what if I ask if you've made an image of God in your mind? How would you answer that one? Humanity's really good about being able to take who God is and morphing him into someone or something he's not. Consider for a moment a time when you or someone you know 
said, my God would never, and then fill in the blank. Whatever you filled in, or whatever that person filled in that blank, had better be backed up in Scripture. Otherwise, a false image of who God is has just been created. I know that I've done that before, and I'm trying to to make sense of God um, as I read Scripture, as I interact with Him and, and in the world, and sometimes I get these false notions of who God is. For example, I think one of the biggest issues I, I had as a, as a young Christian is believing that God would never give me more than I could handle. Um, yet, uh, that's not true. God allows those whom he loves to suffer and enter into pain, not because he's absent or uncaring, but it's through that that he reveals himself and he heals us and he draws us closer to him. Where would I be, not just as a, as a pastor, where would I be as a Christian, as a husband, as a friend, if I hadn't experienced pain and suffering that God had brought me through? If I always kept him at an arm's length and said, this isn't for me, my God doesn't let me do that. One, I'm going to miss out on the joy, which is a very weird word whenever you're talking about suffering. I'm going to miss out on the joy of drawing closer to him. And I'm going to miss out on the fact that I get to minister to others as they suffer as well. Scripture is clear who God is. He's revealed himself so that we can worship him. Jen Wilkin again in her book said, Anytime we take the attributes of, God, of the gods the world around us worships and apply them to God to make him more palatable and less threatening, more accommodating and less thunderous, we produce a graven image. Ouch. As I read that, I was like, oh, I'm just going to set that to the side. Um, I, it's so easy for me to produce an image in my mind and heart of who God is because I don't like it. Um, Humanity is really good about making God in their image when we know that God has made us in his image. And I want us to see that through the second commandment and through the whole scope of scripture. God reveals who he is so that he may be worshipped. We may not carve images with our hands about who God is, but we still carve images out with our hearts. Fallen and sinful humanity has a proclivity towards idolatry and we are to reject any attempt to imagine God apart from his revealed word. God revealed himself to the Israelites. He told them who he is and how to worship him. And he continues to reveal to people who he is through his Holy Spirit and his word. We know that because we sit in this room this morning and we're seeking to worship God for who he is and what he's done in his life, in, in our lives. And so because of that, we want to know who God truly is. And Jesus tells us in John 14 that whoever has seen him has seen the Father. God has revealed himself to us through Jesus. The Apostle Paul even says in Colossians 1, he, Jesus, is the image, the icon, the, the uh, direct 
image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Jesus and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God reveals himself through scripture, through the person of Jesus. And we must not make for ourselves an image of who God is. We already have it. So if we're to worship the true God in spirit and in truth, then we need to know who God is and who he is not. The best way to know him is by reading the Bible in community with other Christians. Don't be tempted like the Israelites to create a false image of who God is. Don't allow your view to be a mixture of scripture and the world. Go to God's word and allow his spirit and his people to form you in your understanding and of who he is and how we are to worship him. Let us be careful to not create an image of God that we worship who is nothing like the true and wonderful and beautiful God. The second commandment also, as I mentioned, has a second part to it. The Israelites were not to create false images of God, nor were they to have any idols of the heart. In the ancient world, idol worship was an important part of the religious landscape. Israel was to be different from the surrounding nations because of their call and commitment to monotheism, i.e. worshiping Yahweh, the creator of the universe. Yet the ancient Israelites were not set apart from the nations only on their account of God, but they were also, in accordance to the second commandment, forbidden to adopt the worship practices of the people around them. Douglas Stewart, in his commentary on Exodus, explains, The nature of idolatry is usually misunderstood by modern people. Idolatry was not merely the practice of worshiping by means of statues and or pictures as focal points for worship. It was rather an entire elaborate religious system and lifestyle. All of it running counter to what God desired and desires true worship to be. Stewart also gives nine reasons in his commentary why idolatry was attractive in the ancient world and how it contrasts with the faith of the Israelites. While I don't have time to go into all nine, I do want to highlight a few for us to gain a greater understanding of the danger of idols. The first reason idolatry was attractive was because it was thought to be a guaranteed presence of a god. Idols were thought to partake in the very essence of this divine nature and the idol was there to represent it. I don't know. It makes me think of Star Trek. Beam me up, Scotty. Like, there's this divine god and his presence is beamed down to an idol whenever you do these incantations. And that's just not true. There's, there's nothing. They're, they're mute. Uh, we, we know in scripture that uh, God calls the Israelites to account that says, uh, you, you make these idols, but they have mouths, but they don't speak. They have ears, but they don't listen. Um, the second reason idolatry was attractive was because it was a selfish practice. 
Idol worshipers would give to the idol what a person thought it wanted in exchange for that person to get what he or she wanted. It was selfish and easy. It was just an exchange of goods. And the third reason worshiping an idol was attractive was because it didn't require ethical behavior. It just required you to show up and give it something. It was a convenient religious system. It was all about the person. If one idol didn't fulfill them, they'd just go on to another idol. And honestly, it sounds kind of like our day. If we put our hope, our identity, our worth into something that ends up failing us, we often move on to something that we consider to be new and better. But then there's this interesting progression throughout the second commandment. We see the progression is that they're not to make images or idols of God or of anything. They're not to bow down and then they're not to serve these idols. I believe we understand what it means to make, whether with our hands or with our minds. But what does it mean to bow down and serve idols whether that is a false image of God or a poor substitute for God. John Calvin, again, wrote, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Our hearts and our minds are always making these small idols to replace the one true God. In a catechism written by J.I. Packer, the, second, the 282nd question is, how will idolatry affect you? The answer is, if I worship and serve idols, I will become like them, empty and alienated from God, who alone can make me whole. When we make idols in our hearts and our minds and we begin to worship them and serve them, we will become empty and alienated from God. If we make an image of God that is not who God truly is, we will still be far from him. Because we're not talking to him, spending time with him. And today as we sit here and we're looking to worship God through faith in Jesus Christ, what idols might you be holding on to and worshiping? Is it the idol of health? Maybe it's wealth. Maybe it's self. If our hearts are idol-making factories, and I believe that is often true, how easy is it to manufacture an idol because we're not walking in step with the Spirit? And we believe this idol to be just as equal to God. We may not articulate it that way, but our actions say otherwise. So let me ask you, what is the idol that you have a greater propensity towards excusing instead of eradicating from your life? This week as I, I sat there and I wrestled with this and really thought, man, I wish Brandon hadn't said that we were going to go in order because uh, I want an easier one. I had to ask the Lord, what are some of the idols in my life? Whether, unfortunately, they're perpetually there or I gain victory over for moments and then I think I'm safe and they come back up. And there are two big idols that I believe the Lord has revealed to me and the first is that of ministry. It's very easy for me to uphold ministry 
as my identity. I've, I've been entrusted with something in which I serve, but my identity is in Christ, yet I can kind of invert that or, or reverse that and make ministry my identity. It's easy for me to be a people pleaser and not engaging in the hard work of calling people up in Christ. And because ministry is an idol, I don't ever want to lose face. I don't want to lose position. And so I'll just, I'll let people sit there. And so I have to be very diligent to let the Spirit work in and through me to break that idol. I like what looks good. I like what sounds good. But that's not always the case in ministry. Ministry is hard work. And if, I am, if my identity's in Christ, I'm worshiping Him, then the idol of ministry should be broken down. The Lord is gracious, He is compassionate, and He takes care of me. And I should reflect that to others. The second idol that I constantly have to be aware of is self-protection. I dislike looking weak, ignorant, or incapable of anything in life. It's easier to have self-deprecating humor than it is to admit fault. I feel like I need to be perfect, not just in ministry, but in marriage, in friendships. If I don't have the answer, it's easy for me to try to self-protect and just, just ramble on. Yet, whenever I meet with others, I never want them to ramble on. I don't want you to be self-protected. I want you to trust the Lord. And so, it's easy for me to want that for you, but for me, I'm the exception, not the rule. That's what I've convinced myself, and that's what this idol continues to speak to me. And so I feel like I'm in this perpetual storm where I cannot see or experience the grace of God because I'm too fearful of humans. Making and worshiping and serving these idols in my life prevents me from experiencing abundant life in Christ. And so this morning, and not just this morning, but in the days and weeks ahead, what is your idol that you've been secretly worshiping and serving? What is it that lies to you about your value, your dignity, your worth? What robs you of hope and peace? God forbids the Israelites and now us Christians to, for, uh, to worship and serve idols because they're really a poor substitute for God himself. And when I look to my idols and not to God, I'm a rudderless boat. I'm tossed to and fro by every wind, by every wave. And I'm just, I'm lost. Yet, I have a God and I have his people that help call me out of my idol making and back into God's love. So, same catechism that I mentioned earlier. The 282nd question, that's not even close to the end. It's a really, really, really long, long book. Uh, but the same catechism has a beautiful question and answer later on. The question reads, what does the second commandment teach us about hope? The answer is, it teaches me that my ultimate hope is in God alone, for he alone is God and he made me. I must not look for salvation and fulfillment in myself, in another person, in my wealth, my occupation, or status, or any created thing. 
Only in God will I find perfect love and fulfillment. And I hope this morning that we can take this truth and begin to reform our understanding of the idols that we have in our lives so that we are, are uh, so that they are crushed and God reigns supreme in our lives. Let me, let me briefly run over just a couple things as we, we begin to close. For some of us, as we read that God is a jealous God, we may struggle with that description. For many, the idea of jealousy comes with trauma and pain. And we don't have the emotional capacity to deal with yet another jealous person, even if it is God. And so I hope this morning I can provide clarity of what God is communicating about himself when he says he's a jealous God. In Exodus 20, verse 5, the word jealous is the same word that's often translated as zealous or zeal. The word describes a passionate intensity to protect and defend something that is jeopardized. When the Israelites, or you or I, worship something other than God, God is passionate in protecting and defending our hearts, our minds, our bodies against those things that cause us harm and pain. So when the second commandment warns against worshiping or serving an idol, no matter what that idol is, it's given the place of God in our lives and it's going to hurt us. That false idol will not provide for us what we think it will and the only one who can provide for us is a zealous God because he desires our hearts. Then this last half of this, this commandment may also cause confusion uh, because we read that God will in, uh, visit the iniquity of fathers to the third or fourth generation, but will show loyal love to the thousandth generation of those who keep his commandment. Consider the period of time in which the Ten Commandments are given. Most family members lived at home or very near one another. Uh, and especially if you're the Israelites at this time, they're going to be traveling around for 40 years. You're going to get really cozy with one another. Um, so... The idea is that whenever a parent or a person worships something, those in their household, those that they're near, will begin to mimic or be influenced by that parent or that um, authority figure. And so if a parent worships something that's an idol, something that is not God, they're teaching their children that that's okay to worship as well. And it works itself out through several generations. One commentator made the case that a healthy way to understand this is that uh, those who hate Yahweh and do not keep his commandments will repeat the sins that their elders committed and will suffer for their disobedience. But those that follow God's commandments will experience the fullness of God's hesed or his loyal, faithful covenantal love last week pastor kevin mentioned john 14 15 which states um, if you love jesus you will keep his commandments god in his unchangeability and consistency has always offered blessing and hope in the midst of faithful obedience to him and him alone our idols cannot offer us punishment or blessing our idols can only provoke isolation and punishment god alone is the one that can provoke 
uh, provide to all of us what we need. And that's namely salvation in and through Jesus Christ. Today we must ask what idols of the heart we have. So, what are we supposed to do in light of this? How do we get to that point of asking what idols do we have? How, as a Christian, are we supposed to apply the second commandment? Let me offer a few suggestions. Today, ask yourself, or better yet, ask God, where have I begun to create a false image of who God is? And how have I begun to worship that false image? Then if you have created a false image, as God reveals it to you, repent, turn away from that created image, and run towards the true and living God. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you clarity and understanding so that you know who God truly is. And the best way to know who God is is to read the Bible. God has revealed himself through the words of Scripture. The second thing that you can do is confess to trusted spiritual companions. Whether that's your life group leader, one of the pastors, a Bible study leader, a friend, find a mature Christian that, can be tr- that you can be transparent and vulnerable with so that they can pray for you, encourage you, and hold you accountable. The third thing that you can do is meditate on Scripture. I often need a constant reminder of what I'm supposed to do. Uh, oftentimes I carry around a notebook for to-do lists, but then I forget to carry the notebook with me, and so it just goes out the window. Um, but I need a constant reminder of what I'm supposed to do. And so whether it's around the house or in my spiritual life, having that list to reflect on is helpful. And so here are four sections of scripture that you can use to meditate on the danger of idols and on the beauty of God. Consider meditating on Matthew 6, 19 through 24, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10, Psalm 115, and Romans 1, 18 through 25. See just how ugly and detrimental idols are and just how beautiful God truly is. Read these verses, consider them, and ask God to prevent you from falling into idol worship while empowering you to worship him fully. And finally, if after all this time, you've prayed, you've confessed, you've meditated, and the Lord has revealed that you do not currently have any idols in your life, tell me the secret. Uh, But beyond that, um, I imagine if it's not you, you know someone that does have an idol. And it probably pains you. You know that what they're worshiping, what they're interested in, what they're spending time on is not giving them eternal life. And so there's one more profound yet simple thing that we can do. And the best way that I can, I can mention this or illustrate this is, is by sharing a, a short story Um, from a book called Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. Years ago, uh, at at, uh, my previous church, I had the opportunity to go um, down to Peru multiple times for mission trips, for short-term mission trips. And a part of our preparation process was to read uh, this book, Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. And uh, I'd never never heard of Hudson Taylor before. And I'm so thankful that I, I have now Uh, In this book, we're introduced to the life and ministry of Hudson Taylor, and he's a missionary and founder of the China Inland Mission. Taylor brought his family from England to China to share the hope of Christ with them. 
And during one particularly hot summer, the family took a boat to an area where the mountains would provide cooler weather. And in, in this book, it says, as the family left their boats the first day and were going up the steep stone path for Buddhist pilgrims, little Gracie, Hudson's little daughter, about eight, eight or nine, noticed a man making an idol. Oh, Papa, she said earnestly, he doesn't know about Jesus or he would never do it. Won't you tell him? Her hands clasped in his. Hudson did so, and the child followed with eager interest. Farther on, uh, they came to a shady place after sharing the gospel, and they sat down to rest. Gracie's thoughts were still full of what had happened, and she seemed relieved when her father suggested that they should pray for the man that they'd been trying to help. We sang a hymn, Hudson recalled, and then said, will you pray first? And Gracie did so. He said, never had I heard such a prayer. She had seen the man making an idol. Her heart was full, and she was talking to God on his behalf. The dear child went on and on, pleading that God would have mercy upon the poor man and would strengthen her father to preach to them. I, I was never so moved by any prayer. My heart was bowed before God. Words fell me to describe it. Shortly after these events took place, Hudson Taylor lost his daughter. In her short life, she models for us what we should do. When we see and know people who are captured by an idol rather than enraptured with Jesus, we are to pray for them. So church, in light of today's passage, let us consider, let us confess, let us meditate, and let us pray for ourselves and for others to be from idols in our lives. May we plead with God that our worship never be content with an idol, but rather that our hearts be full of the peace and comfort of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, that's our, that's our desire this morning. That whatever we've been building up in our lives, health, wealth, success, jobs, family, self, Whatever it is, Lord, by your spirit, help us to tear it down. Lord God, we ask that we would worship you fully, that we would know who you are, who you've revealed yourself to be, and we don't try to make you in our image, but that rather we sit and worship and adore you because of who you truly are. This morning as we wrestle with the thought of worshiping you wrongly or trying to worship you and something else, help us. Give us mercy. We know you desire to. Allow us to receive it. And Lord God, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray that they would continue holding me accountable, that they would I notice in my life when these idols are present and that in grace and mercy they would come alongside of me and help me tear them down for your glory and for the sake of your church. Lord, I thank you for these people. I thank you for the opportunity to freely worship you. 
And I thank you that you are a zealous and jealous God for our hearts, our minds, and our bodies. May we live in a glorifying way to you. We ask all these things in the precious and beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.